Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and welcome to the show, Dominic Brunt. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stuart. I really appreciate you getting me on. Thank you. Is this your fourth appearance? Because I think I've done every film. I think so, yeah, maybe. Actually, no, it's third, and I've interviewed Joanne as well. Oh, yeah, I think that's right, yeah. And I remember the first one I had to do in a taxi, and I kept thinking, oh, like, if you do it in Leeds or Yorkshire, it just goes in and out. And I remember doing the whole thing for like an hour and a half or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And this taxi never dropping out. And it's really, really good. It was one of the best ones I've ever done. And I really enjoyed it. It was nice. Well, we're here because you've got another film playing at Fright Fest, Wolf Manor. Um, and what we are, well, before we get onto that, what we are going to do is discuss five films that have influenced everything you've ever done in your adult life. Which is <laughs> everything, which everything is, I've ever done. Which <laughs> That's I, quite a goal. <laughs> which, which I've done once. So this is the second time I've done this format, and it was fun the first time. How did it go? It went very well because, because in a way, it's 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 not about what's the best films. It's about films and their impact on you. So it's a very it can be very personal. This isn't about being cooler than school or anything. This is about you know what touched you, and that's a very subjective thing. And and also films like music, I suppose, act as a personal biography, don't they? Because our own development, understanding and appreciation of art changes and whatever at different stages in our lives. And films are, I mean, I saw, I mean, I don't know if you know this, while we're talking, as we're talking on the 3rd of August, it's day four of Duke Fest, you know, the Duke Mitchell Film Club. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, their night at the Fright Fest is one of my favourites. It's it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, all that stuff. Because I remember like, because everybody was drunk and everyone was kind of like dropping off, but then it all kicks off and then they start showing these weird kind of like safety videos. And then yeah. you can run to the front and get a Haribo and a, and a and share a drink of this whiskey and then everybody gets drunk and high on sugar again. It's absolutely it's a brilliant thing. But I've never done his festival. Wolf Manor, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what Wolf Manor is all about? So it came to me quite late on. So um, I just got a phone call out of the blue from an editor I'd worked with and he said... Um, there's a film looking for a director. Um, do you fancy it? And I was like, well, yeah, I'll have a look at the script. And uh, and then straight away I was like, right, well, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do this. And and the writers, uh, Joel and uh, Joel Ferrari and Peter Wilde, uh, uh, I mean, Joel Ferrari as well, he's a massive Fright Fest uh, fan he's, and he's, he's there every year. Hmm. And he's one of them faces that's always there as well. So he'd written this film and he'd managed to get the backing for it. And, and I was like, well, you could probably do this. And they're like, no, 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 there's no backstory. That's the whole thing. 
we rack up 10 people, 10 deaths, the werewolf comes and gets them and that's it. And I was like, do you know what? You know, like I'm always looking for like, you know, the, the reasons and the, um, subtext and uh, the characterization and things like that that really interest you as an actor or a director and you know what what now why is this and who they and, and and they were like no but that's the whole thing we reference the fact that there's no backstory we reference the fact that backstories and characterization is boring and nobody really wants it they just want to get on with the deaths and get in the special effects and i was like yeah i can get on board with that you know it's kind of, it's completely different to what i'm used to really i, I quite like the, the balls of it of just going no fuck all that stuff we're gonna do this you know so I thought, right, I'm going to do that. And and also Sean Harrison being uh, special effects, definitely. I was like, yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. So even before I was involved in it, the, the wolf was already kind of being sculpted. So we, uh, me and Pete turned up to Barnsley to see how it was going. And we were like, look at that, you know. Mm. And he said, you know, they, they developed this hair in America that you can kind of get uh, this stuff on. So you, you, you build your sculpture and then you put this hair over and it goes on. And it's almost like rather than punching in a million hairs, you can do it this way. And we were like, oh, that's wow. incredible. It's like this gauze matting that goes over it. Um, and it's all washable as well. So, and it was a, like a full suit that you had to get into. And um, Sean was saying like, usually people can handle it for maybe two or three hours, but then, you know, we've got this fella, he's, he knows he's got to be there overnight shoots uh, in the rain. And it's like up to eight hours really wearing this suit and he's going to have to do it. So we were like, all right, okay. But, um, <laughs> and actually every night it was all right. It was just that after six hours, there was a bit of a whinge, you know, so, <laughs> and, and people were tired because it was all night shoots and, and getting James Fleet involved as well. That was one of the things that um, the writers, uh, well, Pete Wilde, who's the exec producer was saying, I was thinking somebody like James Fleet and we we're going, well, Ask James Fleet, and he was going, nah, there's no way. And I was like, I bet he would, you know, this is a good script. It's really, you know, for, for the leading man, it's an absolute bob on part. So we sent it through, and then uh, we got an email from the agent saying, uh, oh, yeah, James Fleet wants to talk to you. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I had to make this phone call with James Fleet, which was great. And, uh, but he comes from an engineering background, and I was a welder for five years when I left school. So we had that in common, which was great. So we got on straight away, and he said, yeah, go on, then I'll do it. We said, I don't want to shoot all night, every night. So then we had to get the location, the, the scheduling right so that he could kind of, he'd start at nine o'clock and he'd finish for like two or three o'clock in the morning. Then we'd go through to six. So uh, so that was tricky, you know, getting that right. But, you know, rather than lose James Fleet for the sake of three hours a night, you know, we, yeah. we grabbed him, you know. And John Henshaw as well was fantastic. You know, just like, one I know John. One of my favourites. Oh, he's amazing. He's only got a small part, you know, but I sent him and he's, and because he's a dingle as well, he's a fellow dingle. He's like from 20 odd years ago, he was a dingle. Uh, and I bumped into him a few times since. He was like, oh, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, well, get me a car from my house to there and then back to my house and I'll do it. <laughs> <coughs> so that was John Enshaw back in. And uh, Rula Lenska's in, you know, we worked before on bait and she's mm. in like the animation um, kind of prequel at the end, at the end of the credits, we go back and explain uh, I got my own way about a backstory and I said, well, maybe we explain like how this bit happened. She went, yeah, all right, then we'll do that as an animation. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like animation. We always have a bit of animation in all our films, you know, whether they're at the end or in the middle. But um, So, yeah, it was just really, really good to do. Really uh, fantastic atmosphere, really great people. We've, we've got a gang that moves and morphs along the way, but cast and crew, um, 
we you know we try and use people we've always used before or from um recommendations or uh, a DOP I'd never worked with before, Vince Knight, it was fantastic. It's made it look amazing. Tonight shoot, you know, rather than bleach it all out and try and get through the night, he was using the night, so everything's in half shadow and just great. Really, really great fun. Completely invigorating. I loved it. What are the conversations like between you and the DOP when you kind of when you obviously we got that constraint of shooting at night? What are you, what are you saying you want and what is he saying you can get? Well, so I've got my uh, like I always turn up with uh, my shot list and camera shot. Uh, ca- uh, What's it? Uh, shot list and the what's it? What do I call it? Shot list. They're all there. The camera. Oh, I can't remember the word of it. Anyway, it's two words I always use. Anyway, and uh, and my book. It, it, yeah, so, no, I never use storyboard. No, I use. Um, oh, I can't find it. Man. I'll get it in a bit. Let me go and get it. So I do like do this. You know, do me little drawings. Like so, it's just me. I number my shots and then I do my little drawings of where the camera's going to go and all that. And okay, so that's for okay. every scene. So I just go, I just go through that with the, the DOP and tell him where I want them and tell the actors where I want them and how I want it doing. And, you know, we talk it through and then uh, with Vince, he's, he's done loads of stuff in the dark before anyway. So he was used to doing that. So he'd like, he'd shoot the scene mm. and we'd use a fixed point, like a massive uh, moon. And we managed to cut like, <laughs> even in uh, Neil Myers, who does the, the CGI and that he's uh Every time we caught the lighting shot, he'd, he'd CGI'd a moon over the top of it, which looks amazing, you know. And, and they're meant to be filming on a film set anyway, so we catch the odd stand and all that. And um, uh, he'd either get rid of it or we'd use it for the fact that it was it was a it was a, a film crew filming yeah, a vampire yeah, yeah. film that attacked by a werewolf, you know. So we <laughs> got us out some trouble, but um, yeah, it was great. It was great. Like adult babies are supposed to be in the dark, but Jeff uh, Boyle had cancer at the time we didn't know he was very very ill and uh, and he didn't want to do any night shoots you know he, he needed to he needed to sleep at night massively yeah so that was all in the daytime really so i'd always look forward to shooting something at night so when this came along i was like yeah definitely brilliant you know so but getting reacclimatizing your eight hours sleep to like the opposite end of the day was quite strange that that took a few days now as now as a tease dominic without giving too much away What's a particular moment or scene you're looking forward to seeing with the Frightfest audience? Oh, there's a there's a whole sequence. Like, there's loads of there's references to other werewolf films. Put it that way. But yeah. um, there's there's a there's one scene where the two characters split off into two rooms, and the there's like a there's a border between the two rooms. So we put the camera on a on a dolly and and swung between the two. So every time somebody's talking, it swings to them and it swings to them. And then when it swings to one person, the other person's murdered. And then we have to swing by and see that <laughs> slaughter. So while the camera swung away from them, everybody had to run in and we had to rehearse it about a million times just to get everybody in, like get the, the false head in, get the arm in, get this bit, take it off, get splat blood everywhere. And there was no really, there was no going back from it because you had to cover it in blood and then we'd have had to paint over it and try it again later on. So that was like a military operation. And then when it, when we swung back in it and it all worked and we're still recording and it all, all the blood pumps went, the head went, the blood, the body dropped. Um, then we just caught the other character at the side of the screen. Then, then we pan away to see them running up the stairs. It was just one of them things that you go, yeah, I, I planned that. That's how I wanted it. And it actually worked, you know, so there was a huge cheer from everyone, everybody involved. It was like 50 people involved. You're a small part of it, you know? Even, yeah. 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 It was, um, and and that really, really works. And I can't wait for the people to see that. But then somebody pointed out, oh, well, you know that bit in between, the, the border in between, the swing between, well, you could have used that as like, you could have CGI'd that bit in and just set it up and done it separately. Anyone's like, shut up. 
<laughs> we did it in one shot. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to people seeing that. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, Wolf Banner's playing on Sunday the 28th at Fright Fest. I'll put links in the show notes, 7 p.m. Um, and now we're going to move into your five films that have influenced everything I've done in my adult life. Thank you for your list. I'm sure it was a doddle getting it down to five. It was horrible. <laughs> do you want to read the rest of the ones? Do you want me to read the ones that didn't make the yeah, list? Yeah, go on. Give us, give, us some, give us some titles that didn't get on, didn't get on the top, on the five. Okay, uh, race, race with the Devil, uh, El Topo, Carnival of Souls, Virgin Witch, Sexy Beast, Yield to the Night, Diane Dust, um, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Children of the Stones, Seven Samurai, American Werewolf, uh, Night of the Hunter, Blood and Satan's Claw, They Live, and these animations by Lottie Reiniger, who's amazing. I really, really love her stuff. And I was just like punching myself in the face going, well, I can't leave that off and I can't leave that off. So I just thought, right, I'm going to do these and that's it. You know. The, the way I do it is we do them in reverse date order, oldest to newest. So that'll be, I've got them in front of me in that order. It's it's obviously not, it's not a, like a one to five list. It's just five films, obviously. Right, so it's not your favourite. Uh, no, yeah, no. It's, like, it's kind of, because what, like, what I'm interested in is how you how you discovered them, you know, who you watched them with and how, what you know, that that moment of seeing the film because it's, the thing with great art when you discover it is it, it kind of just opens your mind or it makes you believe that something else is possible. I mean, going back to uh, Duke Mitchell, they showed a film called Bloody Oranges on Sunday, the, first, the opening night, which was a film that played at Cannes um, back in, two, in 21, but it's just getting a release in the UK now on a small distributor. Um, and I can honestly say it was like rebooting my love of film, watching it. It, it completely and utterly took me by surprise on every level. It was right. it was absurd. It was extreme, but it had a heart, and yeah. you you kind of felt for the character some of the characters in in the story, even though a lot of it was quite ludicrous and and, and extreme for almost like giggles in a way. But then that yeah. darkness, that black humor that exists, still boiled down to something a very human story, and uh, and I was. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And it's that wonderful feeling of two hours pass. And I honestly thought only an hour had gone and we were just starting the film when it finished. And I was like, I, I oh, wanted, amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I wanted yeah. more. And there's that. It's a lovely feeling that when, when a yeah. film has really consumed you. And uh, yeah. so, yeah. So that's kind of what, you know, that's the way I want you to see it. We're not analyzing these. Well, you can analyze them as much as you want. Um, I'm not a good analyzer. It's like when friends go, oh, yeah, that was the producer that produced this as well. And, oh, well, I think you found the special effects person on that was the same person that did that. And, it, and he was the first AD on the film that was, you just think, I have no idea. I just watch films. I never write notes. I don't know what the directors. And, you know, I did a bit of work last night going, right, I bet another director of that. You know, <laughs> you're asking me. But, uh, yeah, I'm not a great... Um, I mean, does that, make you, does that make you not a cinephile? If you, I mean, I watch an awful lot of films, probably every night. But I don't make all the notes. I'm not like no, no, because I think I think that's a different interest. I think wanting to consume data and wanting to enjoy films are not the same thing. When you watch another film, you're comparing it to the other films you've watched. That's your reference point. No, knowing who, I mean, sometimes things come to the full. Like I'm sure you know a John Carpenter film from a John Carpenter film. You know, so there's some things that within within narrow genres end up being obvious. But yeah, I'm not. I must admit, I'm the same. I mean, it's only when I'm forced to do things like this that I then start picking apart information and trying to find the links. And it's, uh, and it's always, a, it's always an eye opener for me, but three weeks from now, I won't remember all this because there'll be another load of information. There's just not enough room in your head. And just for the listeners, not listening to this before it's five films. We do five minutes chat per film. 
and ev- and every time the um every time the dog barks at the end of five minutes, that's when our five minutes is up. So just for the listeners' reference point. <laughs> and you can um, judging my laugh, you can hear that loud and clear at your end. Let's start off in 1957 for Hal Chester's Night of the Demon, adapted from M.R. James' Cast in the Room and directed by Frenchman Jacques Tourney. Um, yeah. Do you want to, what, how did you discover Night of the Demon? Where does that feature in your... So this is the, so the Night of the Demon is one of them films that I think has always just been around. Like out of the five I chose, it's the only one that I actually don't remember the very first time I saw it. I always remembered the rubbish... Um, creature coming hmm. out of the sky yeah and just think well, that the chewit monster yeah you know just for such an amazing film that captures everything that it, you just kind of like ah oh, yeah yeah that's not great is it but it's part of its charm now i think and i always wondered whether it was scary at the time you know because it's such an old film you kind of think i wonder if audiences at the time were terrified at that and it's just because we've got brilliance at doing things like i mean the thing, you know, because even you watch the thing now and you can, I remember at the time watching the thing and, and it was when like computer graphics were rubbish and, and then computer graphics started getting good. And you think, imagine the thing now, imagine what special effects are going to be like in 40 years time, but they've never bettered, have they really? No, you know, not in practical, I'm, which is what, I mean, it's why I called it Hal Chester's Night of the Demon because he was the American producer yeah. who insisted on, on the monster. It was a real debate That's with it. the film. It was, yeah, there's, yeah, with Jack Turner, he didn't want it in, did he? And then the, the producer wanted it in, yeah. yeah. So a mate of mine who's, uh, do you know um, Tony Earnshaw? No. He's like a, he's a, he's a bit of a, he's a, he's a genre film journalist and it, he wrote the book called uh, Beating the Devil. Oh, okay. Uh, it's about, it's a fantastic book. But I think it was like a limited release because you can see it. I think he, he he texted me or he put something up and said, oh, yeah, you want to go on Amazon because my book's selling for like 250 quid a copy now. And I was like, what? You need, well, that's an extra, that needs reprinting and getting out there. It's a fantastic book. Mm. And that's full of all that. So it's when you you find out that, is it Donna Andrews who plays the, the main lead? is like drunk all the way through it and had go missing down the pub. And he says, oh, if you watch this certain scene, you can hear him slurring because that night they had to get him back and he was absolutely arsehole. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but it's such, um, a, it's such a brilliant premise though, isn't it, for a horror film? A supernatural yeah. cynic is scared into becoming a believer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah, great. And is it, it, well, it's cast in the rooms, isn't it? It's made, it's um, it's a film of, an, is it M.R. James? Or yeah, M.R. James, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, casting the rooms. Yeah, but when you read casting the rooms, it isn't. It's it's better than casting the rooms. I know casting the rooms is like a classic ghost story, but I just think it's better. <laughs> I do, um, and it's uh, oh, the, the chap that plays Carswell, um, it just lends it that whole uh, reality. And everybody's playing. Nobody's playing it for laughs. Nobody's playing it for creepiness. It's just this absolutely straight story that mm. just creeps creeps you out. I just think it's amazing, you know. And you you kind of believe it. Oh, and there's a scene in it. That I absolutely love where they go and see the chap in the prison who was who was one of the um, Last of the Summer Wine actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes out and he's a brilliant actor because I heard from then that um, recently he was like a Shakespearean actor as well. But there's a bit where the, all the scientists and the the, uh, the medical people are queued up in chairs, maybe like a hundred of them, and he's on the stage and they're doing an experiment where they're regressing him. And all of a sudden he flips and runs into the audience. And every single chair, it's all done in one shot. All the people scatter. The chairs get tipped over and go flying. And he runs out and then he throws himself out of the window. And you're like, that? I don't know how you'd rehearse that. It's, it just looks like what, what they're showing happening actually happened. Because everybody absolutely shits the pants and just scatters. 
and I love that. I absolutely love it. And there's there's loads of moments like that in it. Like um when they had the child's dinner party in the in the on the garden. On Carswell's grounds. The weather, and then all the wind blows over all the chairs and the kids like go scattering and all the the the, uh, the, the mums and the parents and the guardians go absolutely flying as well. And you're like, how have you done that? I mean, I've recently read as well that I suppose it's part of Tony's book that they got two massive jet engines, didn't they, and stuck them on scaffolding and turned them on. It's party, yeah. So it literally blew everyone away. <laughs> I mean, I love I, my my favorite bit in terms of like the, the 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 cynic's journey, as it were, is that when he goes to a seance to get cl- that becomes clues to his his solving the problem. It's like a man who believed nothing other than rational thinking is sitting down with a couple of old deers around a table in a terraced house, yeah. speaking to the dead, as it were. Yeah, and he comes out, he gets that weird kind of Welsh accent, the, the, yeah. the spirit guide. And he's, and that chap's in loads of Roger Corman films, isn't he? He's like a comedy actor. I think he's in some um, carry-on films. So it's, it's full of, it's just full of them, like kind of British actors from that time as well that are just, a, yeah. Just, are you pressing that button? No, I'm not pressing anything. Seeing <laughs> you looking down there, don't press the button. <laughs> but a close, um, a close second for that was uh, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, but I've already picked a Brian Forbes film. and. Uh, was that it? Oh, yeah. you, you were. I knew you were. No, I'm, I'm passive aggressive. It does it itself. That's the whole point. I oh, can, does it? Oh, I can't right. tell you to shut up at five minutes, but the <laughs> but the clock counts down to five, and then <laughs> and then it counts down the five minutes. Then it goes off. Uh, right. Well, two more things of that. And then I'll, I'll go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, far away. It's hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and the best box set is by Powerhouse Films as well. That's it's. Amazing. I didn't know it was hundred percent on on because I, I mean I think I think it's I think it's a perfect horror film. I mean on on every yeah, level. Yeah. I mean and I. I did only discover it in the in the 21st centuries for me. It only came to my attention like in the last 20 years. So it's like yeah. so I've, I've only ever seen it, putting it on the DVD myself, not because I imagine it's been on TV tons of times. I just haven't, haven't yeah. noticed. Right then. Yeah, because I think it could probably be on uh, dinner time as well now because there's nothing actually gory. Or yeah, yeah, no, no. It's, it's just it, a fascinating story. Absolutely. Right then. The number two is from 1961, adaptation of Mary Haley Bell's novel by Keith Waterhouse, Whistle Down the Wind, directed by Brian Forbes, who I found out this morning was born down the road for me in Stratford in East London, which is... Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a, a little... It was kind of, as you're just looking around for things, like, oh, bloody hell, look, he was born in Stratford, just around, just around the corner. <laughs> so what well, is Brian it about? Forbes I mean, this is a classic favorite. film in every shape and form. Yeah. So what yeah. is it? What? Where did? Where did? Where did you? Do you remember seeing this for the first time? Is this a film that you you've got a memory of? I do. I was off ill, uh, and it was like it, it was like uh, to me because it, it's I've got favourite films that move like your top three and your top five move, and Whistle Down the Wind has never ever changed from being my top film. It's always been my favourite film oh, ever. Wow. Um, it, it it had a really profound impact on me when I was when I saw it. I was off ill from school, and it was on just during the day, and. Um, and then I kept kind of catching it over the years. Uh, I've, ne- I've never owned it on VHS. Uh, I just kept catching it. And then once DVDs came out and I'd left home and that, then I'd bought it and I kept watching it. And it's impossible to watch without being moved by the final 20 minutes. It's just the setup and the release of that is just, it's just such an incredible film. And I've read the book as well, uh, the, the adaptation of the book. And the main crux, the crux of the film, I mean, without spoiling anything, because it's 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 much more than some of its parts and the setup is, the kids go into the barn, they're, 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 they live in the middle of nowhere near Pendle. Uh, they go in the barn and there's a fella there 
and she, uh, Hayley Mills disturbs him and says, who are you? And he just wakes up and he's a kind of a murderer on the run mm. and he swears to them and collapses. But the swear word is Jesus Christ. <laughs> so immediately these kids just think, oh my God, Jesus Christ is in the stable, you know? So, so they do everything they can to protect Jesus Christ um, from the adults. And it is all about that thing of uh, they're searching for the higher uh, meaning of life. Now they've got this person in the barn and all the adults are going, oh, shut up, just go away. You know, and they're going, well, what about, and then they start asking like massively personal questions because they're in this position and the adults just dismiss them as being silly kids. And you kind of realize, yeah, yeah, that's what it's like being a kid. You know, you get dismissed all the time. Um, and it's just, and uh, Alan Bates is just, you know, he looks like a divine person at that time in his life. Yeah. And Hayley Mills is just one of the best actresses on earth. And, um, I just love it. I just love it. I just love it to pieces. And it's in Downham near us as well. Where, where I'm from, Worley. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm from all over, but at one point I lived in Worley near Clitheroe. So I've been to Downham a couple of times and walked around going, oh, that's there and that's there and that's there. Um, but it's it's an incredible film with so many quotable lines. I don't know if you've, uh, if you remember it with a little lad who plays their little brother and they're keeping the secret from him, but he knows it's a secret. So he just keeps walking around going, Oh, you rotten cows. And he goes, <laughs> he's not Jesus. He's just a fella. And just little things like that that you just watch all the way through. And you just watch it just melting into the floor. You know, it's just a great film. And I'm not a religious person at all, but I appreciate that, you know, the story and uh, just the innocence and the loss of innocence and the, the, uh, the, the ports holding. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply into adulthood and being an adult and the loss of that kind of playfulness um, uh, and, and what your world is as a child and what you're afforded as a child. And then when you become an adult and it's, it's just, you know, it's not as good, is it? Mm. <laughs> and we try and make it better and try and make it as good as it was when we were children, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I just love its pieces. Yeah. No, the, I mean, the, the, the innocence of, of childhood in film is, is, is a, is a fun thing because it's kind of, it's it's show, it shows you that ability to try and be like an adult, but it's always tinged yeah. with childlike wonder, isn't it? It's never quite because yeah. the context for them is they're not worried, they don't see any threat, do they? There's no threat to them. No. Whereas if no, you're an no, adult, no. you find a threat, whether whether they're a murderer or not. If you find a, a, an adult in your barn, you're not going to immediately yeah. think good things as an adult. No, no, <laughs> you know, no. and that's the thing because they think they they're preserving and fighting for, and then all the kids in the area get involved. And they all believe that they're um, protecting this this wonder and this uh, this deity. And then all the adults who are adults and know what's what, 
believe that they are all the children are in danger and are trying to spoil it for the kids but the, the the adults are actually trying to save the kids but then there's that other thing as well that she brings out the innocence in the murderer as well and and then you think no he's kind of, and, and he does that magical trick of turning it all around and thinking well he might be worth saving you know because i think he's a, he sees the light he sees the wonder in in these kids and it's just full of, and then there's loads of little tricks in it. Like he's being patted down on the hill and his arms are outstretched and you go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the crucifix on the hill. And then there's uh, you know, all the things that you remember from being at school and certain hymns play or little uh, chimes of little ditties going, you go, Oh, that's that hymn I used to sing at school, you know, just, it just full of t- tons and tons and tons of stuff like that. You know, say, Oh no, that was quick. That felt like two minutes. <laughs> Your third choice is Amicus's From Beyond the Grave, 1974, a horror anthology that stars among many recognisable faces. Uh, David Warner, who sadly passed recently. Yeah. Uh, may he rest in peace. He was in the chapter of the gate crusher. Um, what, where, where, does, uh, where does discovering From Beyond the Grave start for you? Where, where did you see this one? And what is the appeal? Well, so, um, I was still at primary school, very much at primary school. Uh, but my mate, Nathan, uh, I, mean, I think I must have been about like eight or nine years old. Hmm. And he had, he had the sort of like my parents are, and I'm like that. I don't want my kids to watch like 15s until they're 15 or 18 until they're 18. You know, I think it's hmm. there for a reason, but they've got mates that go, oh yeah, I've seen the exorcist. And you're like, what? There yeah. are things in that you should never be watching at that age, you know? And I really believe that there's a reason for the certification. However, you know, we know when we were growing up, there was no certification on anything. No. Um, so, it, the, my, but my parents wouldn't let me stay up. You know, it's bedtime at that at that time, and that was it. But I think it's because they were nurses, and they kind of had that. One of them would work for eight hours, the other one would work for eight hours, and the others, had, you know, then we'd all go to bed. So, you know, very rarely saw them together. But it was like regimented so that they could both work their eight-hour shift uh, and still bring up a family. Hmm. But my mates, mum and dad, would just like just you know. They, they'd go to bed and leave us up, you know? So when I stayed over there, I was like, yes, you know, you could nip out the front door and just wander the hills if you wanted to. It was just like, I mean, that was paradise to me. I was like, I can't believe this freedom that you've got. Um, So we stay up and watch films, you know, just watch telly. And and, and one of the ones was this from beyond the grave. And we were like, yeah, yeah, let's watch a horror film. And for years I thought it was a hammer horror film. Yeah. You know, and I know it's the amicus now, Mm. um, uh, but yeah. uh, And, and I, and I kind of regretted it straight away. And, and, I mean, now watching it, you're just like, yeah, it's it's, a, it's good. It's a good anthology. It's brilliantly put together, mm. but it's not really super duper scary. But at the time, and specifically, there's a face that comes out of the mirror. I couldn't look, you know, it was proper like, I, I, you know, I had to avert my eyes. I was like, you know, and I didn't want to pretend to me, mate, that, well, I was trying to pretend to me, mate, that I wasn't that scared, but I was absolutely, it really, 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 really scared me. And, I, and it kind of started my fascination of horror films as well, because, you kind of don't like it, but you like it, you know. And you, oh you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, you felt safe because it's behind the glass. But um, I think that was my first twinklings of like horror is amazing, and it physically can hit you in the chest, you know. Um, uh, you know, even recently things like It Follows and The Babadook that have done that recently, where you just kind of go, "What?" You know, <laughs> this is a great idea. And I know, like The Babadook was a bit um, hot and cold for some people; they didn't get yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, you know, I thought it was amazing. Uh, yeah, from Beyond the Grave was great. And then, like, recently, I've, I've still got my old VHS collection. I've still got, like, uh, The Exorcist, The Evil Dead, and uh, uh, it's not called From Beyond the Grave for some reason on VHS, but I've been dragging around with me for the best part of maybe 35 years this clutch of VHS tapes, and that's one of them as well that I've kept hold of. Um, 
But same, you know, I don't, I don't, oh yeah, so, yeah, there's just loads of people in it. It's like, I've got a list here now because I thought I'd write it down. It's like Donald and Angela Pleasant who, who are great. It's great. I don't think Angela Pleasant did enough as well because she did Symptoms and she kind of popped up in little things. But she's a fantastic actress and she just, you know, she looks the part. She's fantastic. And uh, seeing her with her dad as well in that little short film mm. was just great. And uh, Ian Bannon as well and uh, uh, Diana Dorsey and Ogilvy. Um, just just a really, really good anthology, I thought. I, I just really enjoyed it. And oh, what was I going to say about that? I've lost my train of thought now. Well, um, what, what I wanted to ask you, obviously, having been, having been in, in a Yorkshire set farm soap opera, how, how yeah. do you rate Peter Cushing's Yorkshire accent? It's all right. It's good. It's a bit like, you know, a lad, you know. <laughs> but I thought it was all right. I thought it was good. He just plays it really creepily, doesn't he? You know, and he's like, he's just hidden behind glass and he comes out behind glass and things. Oh, I'm right. I remember what I was going to say. Go on, now. go on. You know, all, like, all of a sudden, like in the early 70s, loads and loads of really good top actors ended up in like these horror films. Mm. And I was, I watched Craze. Uh, with oh, I can't remember his name now, but uh, it was released on uh, Nucleus Films with Jake West, mm. um, um, and they were saying that, and that was released in 1973. And Diana Dawes is in that, and there's a few other actresses and, and actors, but it's got like Edith Evans in and people like that. Wow, uh, Jack Plants is in it. He's the main. That's who I was trying to think of. Jack Plants is in it, and they said, well, there was there was a slump in uh, like tax. At rebates and uh, the funding of films and all of a sudden anybody that was in film there was no films being made at all so they just went for the, the nearest ones and things like Craze were, were independent films and it meant that they could get paid so you get Edith Evans doing stuff that she shouldn't you know he wouldn't be Edith Evans in a, in a little crappy horror film she's got like a, it's not a crappy horror film but you know yeah, it's, yeah. I know what you're that's saying. what they would see it as they would definitely see it as that you know uh, it's our bread and butter you know but it's uh, and I think that's why I think that's why people ended up in, in films like that because of that. Oh, the dog, the dog. Go on, finish your thought. No, that's it. That's it. I just think there was that magical period in like 73, 74 where all these massive actors ended up in uh, in like um the strangest films on earth, really. What but wasn't it also there was also the point about anybody in London, if you're on stage, for example, you could do the stage and do the day. In, in a film on a film set or something there was a lot of that I think that went on as yeah, well yeah yeah I read that about it's Psychomania the, the, the lead chap in that says oh yeah well, I, was, I was on stage here and I was doing yeah. that and then I said oh I've got, I've got time to do that film so I got all my mates that were in the play and they were on the other motorbikes and we could finish it this time get straight across to London get to start the play again yeah yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. yeah. which was kind of a weird quirk of London more than anything else yeah yeah right then number four is from 1980 and it is sort of, I guess, a quintessential of what became known as the Video Nasties, although I don't think it actually ever got banned in the same way as, as many others. I'm talking yeah. about Robert Houston's Shogun Assassin, which which I don't know about you, but when I first saw it, I never knew that this was, you know, a kind of compilation in the sense of it's two of the Lone Wolf and Cub series yeah. mashed together. But, you know, yeah. you tell me, what was your where was your... Where did you come? Where did you come together with this film? Well, my, my mate's dad uh, owned Accrington Video, and and like we said, there was no certification at all, so you just keep getting these films out. So I'd seen them all, um, and horror was always our main go-to. You know, if it was anything mm. else, you just like last snows of spring, you just like you just didn't want to watch anything else. You just watched, even action. I wasn't even that fussed with action. It was always horror. Um, 
So, and this was one of them that you kind of you, you think, is it going to be a ghost? Is it going to be a monster? Is it going to be a vampire? Is it going to be loads of blood? But this was completely different because you were kind of aware of Kung Fu films, which is a completely separate genre, but this seemed so horrific and so bloody that it was definitely in the realms of horror. You know, I'd, I'd go and watch it at a horror film festival any day, mm. you know. And it was the, I remember, I remember the colour of blood in, uh, in, in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, uh, but this was like the same palette of blood, you know, that bright red kind of like almost like brighter than a telephone box red, um, and loads and loads and loads of it. But in the meantime, there was loads of really good fights as well. <laughs> it was just this crackers film. Yeah, but then later on, learning more about it because it, it's always known as his film, but it, it's it's Ken Ken Kenjo. Mushi, I've got it written down here actually in my notes. See, this is it. That's what, that's what I mean. No, I'm go not, on, go on, no, go far away. You, you refer oh, to Ken, uh, Kenji Misumi. And it's really his film, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, but of then course, yeah. he edits it together and said it. I think he didn't even get mentioned on some of the VHSs and that. So I mean, yeah, I mean Robert, I think Robert Houston got the rights for something like fifty thousand dollars or something from like some yeah. American cinema association. So it's like a really nefarious way of sort of this film even coming about in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I just think it was one of the the bloodiest things ever. And and I think what he did brilliantly was put them two films together because he could have released two of them and got double bubble, but he just, I think he saw that get rid of the talking, get rid of the exposition, get mm. the good bits there. And because even the music, he redid the, redid the music, didn't he? And, um, oh, I didn't know uh, that. Well, it wasn't him. I can't remember who did the music as well. I've got the album downstairs and, and even the music's amazing, you know, and that really, really good narration. Um, and then once it starts, you're just on your way, you know, it sets up that brilliant thing. And, and, and like all the best Kung Fu films have just saying, right, these people have killed that person. So he has to avenge them. And he mm. just spends all that time wandering around with his, his son in the cart, walking yeah. from town to town. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, it can be paid in food and money to uh, avenge other people. But in the meantime, his, his, his bigger arc is to get revenge for himself. Um, which he does brilliantly at the end, and also it was the it was uh, um, the uh, the Mandalorian, and you know, it was it was the it was the uh, the main thing for him, wasn't it? That was that's the, where the Mandalorian story came from. Shogun Assassin, um, was it really? Yeah, 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 I haven't yeah, seen Mandalorian, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's the Mandalorian walking around with the uh, baby. But, but, it's su- but it's such a simple story idea, isn't it? You know, you're wrong. Yeah, but a good story, but like with massive amounts of blood and gore. Yeah, and yeah, violence. yeah. But it really, I mean, I mean, as a kid, like the 80s, it was a real rite of passage film. You know, Shogun Assassin was was one regularly doing the rounds that shouldn't have yeah. been. Obviously, priestification as well. Um, yeah. And then, and then post-84, when you've got the Video Recording Act, it then became rare as rock and roll shit because it wasn't, it wasn't as easy. Or the, or the, the Vipco release became so edited and stuff, you wanted the version that was yeah. priestification. So then you ended That's up... That's it, yeah. I used to go to... Um, Underground Books, I think it was called, Manchester, or Manchester Underground Books, in, under the corner. What was under the corn exchange when it used to be Scuzzy? Yeah. And I yeah. used to get, I got Cannibal Holocaust on on Pirate, and I got, you know, you got Shogun Assassin. And I paid 12 <laughs> quid for these in the, in like the 80s. Wow. 12 yeah. quid. Madness. For a month, like 300 quid now, aren't they? You can't even get them now. Even if you go into eBay and type it in, you're like, I'm not paying that, you know. I've got me. I've got a Betamax and a video VHS of it downstairs as well that I just kind of keep in my little collection. Do you have it's an ability like, to still play them though, or are they are they just yeah. objects for you to to enjoy having? No, no, no. I do play them sometimes, but you know, there's a reason. You know, when they say go back to vinyl because vinyl's better. Mm. You know, it's kind of true, but you can't go back to VHS because VHS was shit, and it's a fact. 
But I do quite like the fact because we got we brought we, we did adult babies on a limited edition VHS. Yeah. So I hadn't played them for years. They were like objet d'art, really. And then uh, when I got these VHS players to kind of r- record um, adult babies onto VHS tape, and then we redesigned the case and all that. Um, I, I was like, right, I'm going to go through my films again. So I have watched them all. Like The Exorcist is still great, you know, with all the, the lines going down and the tracking. It felt really authentic to watch The Exorcist on VHS. The how, dog. How did, how did the VHS affect, how did the scan onto VHS affect adult babies? As, as oh, it's the- good. It looks great. It just looks, you know, it's, it looks awful. But, you know, it, it just fits that film. Wow. Yeah, I, I love it. You know, we made twenty-two of them, and I keep. I thought, right, I'm going to do this with these, or I'm going to sell them, or I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And I was like, I'm not going to sell them. Going to, where am I going to sell them? So every now and again, I'll just give one away. I'll have one in my bag and just give it away to someone. You know. So well, look, if you if if you've anyway. time while you're at Fright Fest, there's a documentary yeah. called The Cult of VHS that you might find interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen it already. It's really it's really interesting take on. Uh, oh, have you seen it? Right, because Kev Proctor, a mate of mine, is is one of the producers. I think or is something to do with it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Because not to give too much, I won't give anything away of, the, of, the, of like the, the, what he shows you. But it dawned on me because they they do talk about that idea of vinyl revival and VHS revival. But then they go, but yeah. well, VHS was a shit format, so it's not yeah. like vinyl is about. There's a, there's a sound quality that's directly yeah, related or, to the sound produced because it's an analog yeah. reproduction of the sound. Um, yeah, uncompressed. Yeah. Whereas um, on, on on this, but what, what dawned on me at the end of it was, do you imagine in twenty fifty that someone born in ninety five to two thousand is going to make a, a documentary about what they found on streamers bypassing child safety settings? It just it just doesn't even it, it couldn't ha- it only and it made me feel really sad and 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 because I thought. Because I'm sure people are discovering, young people are discovering films. There's no doubt about it. But it just yeah. dawned on me that that maybe that's part of the the hunt was part of the fun, part of the yeah. going to a big store that you're just trying to buy all these covers that were well, most of the covers lied through their teeth. They weren't the film you were going to yeah, see. Oh yeah, 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 awful. Yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. part yeah. of, the, and especially the cartoon ones because yeah. the cartoons would show everything, and then you get it and you go, "This is absolute shit." Yeah, this is terrible. The the airbrush didn't half airbrush over a lot of reality in terms yeah. of what you. Uh, <laughs> You know, a Bruno Matai film is not what it says on the cover. No. <laughs> Fun as they may be, they they, they were. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Right then. Well, we're going to better change a tone for number five and a, and a Merchant Ivory film at that. Adaptation of Kasui Ishiguro's novel Remains of the Day from 1993. Uh, I went to the pictures to see it when I was at drama school. But when I got into drama school, I, had, I always had that. Imp- I still have it now that, you know, that imposter syndrome. And I, I have it in spades. And, you know, I know people go, oh, I've got a bit of imposter syndrome about it. You think, I, ha- I have imposter syndrome. It's a part of me and it's it's debilitating sometimes. You know, you've got to get over it. Um, so I got into drama school and, and Bristol Ovid was only 14 people in a year, but 3,000 people had applied to go for them part them places it was a three-year course and it kind of changed my life and I knew when I got the letter accepting it I knew I remember walking to the shop like a bit unsteady thinking things are going to change from now on sort of thing or they could you know certainly for the next three years then when I got there it was it was full of kind of people that are in Merchant Ivory films you know so there's lots of like uh, well-spoken people you know and uh, lots of RP yeah, you know, and, that, and and we were encouraged in the first year to speak RP. It was Nat Brenner was the uh, was the principal there, and he died during our first year. And um, 
And then the next principal was like, no, no, literally, it, it's quite important you keep your regional accents. I was like, thank God for that. I feel stupid, you know. I was, I was giving it a go, but I did. I felt <laughs> silly. It wasn't me, you know. It wasn't. Um, and but then, I, yeah, I went to the pictures and saw this, and and it is about a, a fish out of water. And uh, well, he's not a fish out of water. He he, he panders to the hierarchy and mm. gives his life to the hierarchy. And I was like, it, it just spoke to me and. And and also Anthony Hopkins giving that performance of a lifetime. He was he was just he 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 showed that you didn't you know he showed that you can do very little as long as you believe it and as long as you're thinking that as the process. Yeah. And I completely believed every word and it was affecting. But you know, like there was a documentary years ago with Michael Caine saying an actor must do nothing. And then he goes this thing, and as an actor going, I can't, I don't know what the line is, but say he said, "Pass me that pencil." And he goes, "No, no, less." So the actor goes, "Pass me that pencil." And he goes, "No, less." So you see the actor getting more scared, and the actor in the end goes, "Pass me that pencil." And he goes, "That's it." And you think, "No, that isn't it." It's shit. <laughs> so, but Anthony Hopkins is a, is a separate of that because it's a thought process, and it was like um, it was just like a, it was like an acting lesson. It was just it was brilliant. I kind of felt like I learned as much during that film as I did throughout the whole three years, although the three years in Bristol of it was an amazing theatre school. Um, it kind of, it just gave me a lot of confidence and made me think, well, I don't mind. I don't care being an ordinary. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to get on with it really, you know? And uh, so, so I did it and, and, and it just came at the right time. And I just, I still love that film. I could watch it every day, you know? And it's, and it's, and obviously from, from an Anthony Hopkins point of view, you know, two years earlier, he was iconically a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. Lamb. So no. it was such yeah. a shift, wasn't it? In terms of, yeah. I mean, what's the famous, uh, is it Laurence Olivier said, have you tried acting, dear? When, <laughs> the idea of, I can't do this, I can't do it. have you tried acting? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is that, isn't it? You know, to do those two different roles is is to show yeah. what acting's about, really, is that he's, yeah, as, yeah, be- yeah. he's as believable Yeah, and he's not one. running across the screen, you know, screaming or anything like that. You yeah. know, he's absolutely considered. And he kind of, he, he acts in his own space and time, and you feel like everybody has to go around him. I mean, he is the leading man, so he's allowed to do that, mm. you know, but... You just couldn't take your eyes off him, you know. Even Shadowlands as well, you know, and he breaks down at the end. And you just think Anthony Hopkins is one of the favourite actors and just, you, you could never be him. You could, No matter what you do, you can never be as good as him. I know, like, I played mandolin and practised and practised and practised for years and years and years and years and years and got to a certain standard, but then somebody will come along and play brilliantly. You just want to smash it against the wall, you know. But uh, So there's a difference between that and Anthony Hopkins because you still look up to him, you still learn from him and still think, oh my God, you know, what is... He's I mean, just, when you, when, just out of interest, when you're, when you're learning acting at, 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 school, at school, as it, acting drama school, as it were, and you see someone like Anthony Hopkins, who, to me, who doesn't act, it's like seeing yeah. people like him, some people have got a presence and some people haven't. I'm not even sure. I'm not even yeah. sure it's even acting half the time. It's just yeah. that, you know, people say, don't they? I could, I could watch them read the phone book kind of thing. It's yeah, almost yeah. like they're captivating in of themselves. Yeah, but there isn't, it's, it's, it's not just that. I think just because he's, because he's clearly had to learn the lines, but it, yeah. it's, it's the pacing and the, his timing of every single delivery of every single line is like, it's, it's minutely accurate to the nth degree. So I just, amazing you know and like i don't watch films to watch the actors you know mm. apart from maybe robert de niro and and uh, thinking about he's just seen they just seem to be in a different stratosphere and so the lonely the lowly uh soul patcher in me just what looks look at them going you know <laughs> well look that was a brilliant uh, round of five films i'm just gonna run through the list again just to remind people what we've discussed so five films 
that um, that have influenced everything I've done in my adult life, according to Dominic Brunt. Uh, Night of the Demon from 1957, uh, Whistle Down the Wind from 61, From Beyond the Grave, 1974, um, Shogun Assassin from 1980, and then I jump into the 90s for 1993's Remains of the Day. I think they're a, that's a wonderful quintet of films. And obviously, as you said at the beginning, it was five chosen out of many others that could have featured in this list. Um, but I think it yeah. gives a real insight into you as a film, as a film lover. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I could have chosen the others as well, and just talking about that, saying about that um, uh, seance on a wet afternoon, you kind of think, oh, maybe I should put that in. It's such an amazing film. It's one of them films that nobody's really heard of, and uh, somebody, uh, an actor called Pat Lally, said, oh, Brian, you like Brian Forbes? Have you ever seen Seance on a Wet Afternoon? And I watched it, and I think honestly, everyone should try and watch. Saints on a Wet Afternoon or any Brian Force film. Yes. I don't know why there's so many British uh, directors that are lauded and everybody ignores Brian Forbes. He's just he's one of our best uh, directors. His, his, his films are bob on every single time. All of them are, you know. I mean, I mean, to my turn, to my to my shame, up until um, end of last year when I had uh, the novelist on Kathy Unsworth, I wasn't even aware of the film. That's that's kind of, and when I watched it, I was blown away and and like. I was a bit like, why don't more people know about it? And she was basically saying she's made it a, because she's written this book called Bad Play Blues, which is a kind of fictional retelling of a real unsolved murder in 1960s London. It's an amazing book. Right. And, yeah. and so we did five films that influenced the book. Yeah. And, and one of them was Saints on a Wet Afternoon. And another one was oh, oh, right. Great. Killing of Sister George. Um, the L-shaped room, which is amazing. Oh, the L-shaped room. Yeah, see that another one. Yeah, yeah. There's something called the Whisperers as well. Um, I think that's Edith Evans, isn't it? I think that's Edith Evans as an older lady, and, and she's just, you know, he just, he just, he, why is he ignored? You know, when all these amazing films are there, it's incredible. You know, he should be held up there with Ken Loach. He really should. You know, and it just seems mad that Richard Attenborough is there. Everybody's going, oh, you know, and then Brian Forbes is just completely ignored. You know, I mean, what, what a clutch of films he made. Right. Well, I shall, I shall continue my mission then to keep raising awareness. But it just gives me to say, good luck at Fright Fest. I'm sure you don't need it. And thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. No, you're absolutely welcome. And it's always a pleasure to speak to you. And thank you so much for your continued support. And I'm going to grab you for a pint as well in your Fright Fest. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.